Members of the TalkScript team were on site at NEJSConf 2019, where we did a series of interviews with the conference speakers. We had a great time meeting these thought leaders and learning more about each of them and their talks. We've compiled the interviews into a four-part series to help share the essence of NEJSConf 2019. This episode contains interviews with Cass Perch, Luke Bonacorsi, and Sebastian Golosh around the theme of using JavaScript beyond the typical website. This is Brian, and... I have with me Eric. Hello. And our special guest, Cass Perch. Hi. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So I'm a developer advocate at Cloudflare, and uh, I am an IoT addict. I've written two books on IoT with JavaScript, and so I do a lot of fun stuff with robots, and I do a lot of stuff in the cloud. Nice. Was that in your talk? Because I think I missed that. In my introduction, I mentioned I wrote wrote two books, but yeah. Okay. Well... I know something new, but that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. Why oh, it's you... oh, don't write books. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I've learned from writing two books. I've, is don't I've write heard, books. yeah, I've heard stories. So you did talk about Wasm, mm-hmm. which WebAssembly for those who do not know the acronym. Yeah, one of our engineers, Carl, uh-huh. is a Wasm fanatic, right? And I mean, he's pitched Rust. Over. So, oh man, so I'm rust, right there with him. Your rust pitches during your talk, it was like, man, that could be Carl up there <laughs> giving the rust pitch. Like, I mean, I mean, every time, every time I learn something new about that language, I think, wow, this language is really well thought yeah. out. Yeah, well, and that's what I've heard. We went on a, a company excursion, and so on one of the bus rides to <laughs> one of our events, he just kind of gave an overview of Rust, and yeah. like, as I mean. You can tell that the guy loves the language, and like as he's telling me, I'm getting more and more excited. Yeah, it's like it's, this is this is amazing. Like, plus, the Rust book is free. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. free and open source. Like you can buy a print copy if you wish. Um, yeah, sure. Or you can donate, and I, I suggest you do that because oh, yeah, you put sure. a lot of work into it. But yeah, and it, like again, every time I learn something new about the language, like the way they keep it thread safe through borrowing and ownership, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think wow, this is a really well thought out. So language. now I gotta go research that. So <laughs> there's always something new. The to learn, Rust right? book is where to go. I'll put, yeah. oh, it, it'll be on my slides. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. So WebAssembly, tell us what you're excited about. I'm, I am excited about a, a web with multiple languages. Yeah, I'm excited yeah. about developers being able to pick the language that works best for them for whatever they would use a backend for or whatever they would use CPU intensive Sure. Uh, stuff for and being able to to use that language yeah. like you were talking earlier about java developers trying to use angular well java has a WebAssembly target why not use java especially? that, that kind of scares me to be honest <laughs> <laughs> no, I, that's fair i even said in my talk about the php, the that, PHP that target, kinda, people were like there's a what and i'm like don't diss php yeah developers. you can run you can run uh, uh wordpress in your browser now yeah right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, in fact, there is even a TypeScript WebAssembly. Yeah, which I mean, it kind of makes yeah. sense. Because yeah. I, I love, I love how like I, when I talk about how JavaScript, it helps augment when JavaScript's really bad with types. Someone always comes up to me and goes, "You know TypeScript, right?" Like, know yes, exists, I right? know yeah. TypeScript exists. Not I mean, we're a TypeScript that. podcast. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> and it, it almost makes me wonder if I mean, there's probably a, what a JavaScript target. So if you wanted to write your, there probably stuff, is. Yeah. One time I knew I was sleep deprived because I thought I should write a WebAssembly target for JavaScript. And I'm like, I need to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. You had a really cool demo. 
Thank you. The demo was you took a picture of yourself. Yep, I took a picture of myself, which and was I pretty sweet. Converted complete, to a camera, and it was complete web technology. Yes, right. Yes, took took a picture live <laughs> on stage, mm-hmm. and then you had your little browser window. Uh huh. And then I hit there. There were buttons to rotate it left and rotate it right, and, right, then, well, and CSS can do that. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I'd say. Oh, yeah. CSS can do that. Cast. What can you do next? Yeah. And I hit a grayscale button. It turned the image grayscale. Yeah. You can do that with CSS, but not in all browsers. Correct, yeah, yeah. Because it's, the filters are only in sure. the browsers. Yeah. But you can do that in WebAssembly in way more browsers than you think. 80% of web browsers that are run by users support WebAssembly. Have WebAssembly, nice. Yeah, so we've got pretty good market saturation, for sure. 4 yeah, out of 5. Yeah. And then I hit less contrast, more contrast, yeah. and blur. And, and the blur, blur was the big the one. The blur was the cool one. It yeah, yeah. snapped blurred. Like, I've seen CSS blurs, like, take a little bit of yeah. time to take effect. This, this, was, this, was, this was almost instantaneous. Mm-hmm. And, and then I, know, there, there might have been a lag on the screens, mm-hmm. but, I mean, it was it was near instantaneous. Yeah. So what did, what did you use to do that? So I used a, a, a module called Wasm-ImageMagic that I pulled off Sweet. NPM. Yeah. All I had to do was NPM install Wasm-ImageMagic. And it was really cool. It was the first time I gave this talk at JSConf Asia, the author of that library saw my talk and like wrote me an email about how, oh, wow, that's so cool. I never thought it would be used like that. I used it for this. And that's I'm like, hilarious. It was so great. And then to kind of do the magician powder of there's nothing up my sleeve and there's nothing in my hat. This, this, I thought this was a great touch. I turned off the Wi-Fi and I turned off the HTTP server running in the yeah. background. And so you don't I, have a 3G model, module on your Mac, right? I do not. Okay, all right. So, uh, yeah, nothing up my sleeve, nothing on my hat. And then I I continued pressing more buttons and manipulating the image to prove that it wasn't going back to the server yeah. because the server was then shut down and it wasn't going anywhere on the internet. Yeah, exactly. So it wasn't making the AJAX request. Yeah, it was It was very similar to some of the, the service worker demos that I've seen. But, that, but is I mean, not, was, that is not a coincidence. I believe well, I'm Web, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe WebAssembly and service workers are going to create truly offline applications, yeah. which is great w- for Electron apps. I'm telling you, WordPress. Yeah, WordPress <laughs> offline. Download the entire database into the user's browser of, of blog posts. I don't know if I can endorse that. I but like. But like text editors and Electron apps <laughs> yeah, for sure. that currently their offline modes are less than Stellar, yeah. WebAssembly and service workers are really going to make that That's happen for them. Yeah. I used to say like that there are eras of the internet. There was the pre-Ajax and post-Ajax era, and I think we're entering a new era yeah. with WebAssembly. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, it's, it's a new era of the internet. Yeah. Well, and your demo used Image Magic, which yeah. has been around for quite a while. About 15 years. You know, and it's a, a well-known library, and that's a good example of using existing technology. Right, not rewriting. Know, just targeting it. it and not having to go and rewrite this in JavaScript. Yeah. You know, go through the steps that were already done and yeah. just leveraging yeah. you know existing technology right. in the browser right. really opens up. Because I don't want to rewrite image magic in JavaScript exactly. to you. you know, so it opens <laughs> up this, you know, catalog you of software that previously wasn't accessible. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's a really cool. good thing you, you mentioned that along with native USB technologies, we're able to do some really cool stuff with microcontrollers in the browser now. You can flash Ramada from the browser. Oh, nice. Onto an Arduino what? Uno. Yeah, a native USB. And then there's a... It's a little scary, but... It's a little scary, but there's also a JavaScript engine called XS, and it's made by a company called Modable, and it runs on ESP32s, ESP8266s, and it implemented Wasm. So you can run Wasm on robots. On a, awesome. on a microcontroller. Yes, and you can also run Rust on microcontrollers and you as a, wait, get, as a Rust target or as a Wasm target. Oh my word. Yeah. This yeah. is like the new like Ada. 
It kind of is because <laughs> the idea that you can use multiple languages to, to write a microcontroller is something I've always been a big fan of. Yeah. Because that, that's where I got my name was the node botanist. Because oh, okay. I did a lot of node bots. And yeah, yeah, yeah. we were sitting around one day and we were trying to figure out what to call people who did node bots. And I said, node botanist. And someone <laughs> said, no, but you should take that. And I'm like, yeah. And I rolled with it and it became my <laughs> nice. name. Nice. That's cool. But... Even though I'm the node botanist, I do MicroPython, I do all these yeah. other ones because I, I believe you should be able to program in whatever language fits, solves your problem and meets your for needs. For sure, for sure. Oh, that's cool. I thought that that was something that you brought up, like why are you writing your code based on yeah. JavaScript? Yeah, I asked the I asked the group, raise your hand if you want to rewrite this ten year old C plus plus library with tons of units. I raised tests. my hand, but you yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like one or two people always raise their hands and I, I think it'd be fun, right? Yeah, okay, but like say do you want to do that at work? No. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean if somebody's gonna pay me to do it, then maybe and, yeah, the, but not the, anyway. Yeah. Most people don't anyway. Yeah, but so like one of the one of the big demos of like the ASMJS and the Wasm was getting the Unreal Engine yep. to compile to, well, I can't remember, I think they originally did with ASMJS. Yes, they did originally with ASMJS, and that's why I say games in the browser, but for reals, and I mean yeah. it this oh, time. Oh yeah, for sure. Because we've been claiming that over and over again with like all sorts of different technologies. Yeah. WebGL, we were like, oh, we can do games in the browser now, only if your device has a GPU. Because WebGL only runs on the well, GPU. Well, yeah, and the, the WebGL API is... That too. But uh, WebAssembly, yeah. really, you can get native performance yeah. out of your li libraries, and you can get libraries that do the shading. Lua has a compile target for Wasm. Of course it does. Of course it does. G course gaming it does. companies are excited about Wasm, so the idea that there's a Lua yeah. WebAssembly target out there doesn't surprise me at all. No, it really doesn't. Because a lot of games developers just know Lua, and again, that's why I'm so excited about Wasm. Yeah. It's all of these developers who originally thought, oh, I'm not a browser programmer, well, now you are, now you can be. Yeah. During your talk, I turned to Eric and I said, because you were talking about native bindings, mm -hmm. and I can't remember which module you brought up. That, that most people bring down and, and it either compiles oh, I was or it goes out and fetches one. Yeah, any native module. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. so like the FS yes. watcher and stuff. Oh, yes, for, for WASI bindings. Yes, that would be like FS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's what WASI would solve. So I took, well, I turned to Eric and I said, well, because the project I'm on uses Node SAS, mm -hmm. but it's behind a firewall. Oh, no. So it has to go out and fetch the bindings and I'm just like, if they would have just let, if Node SAS would figure out that Wasm is, <laughs> we wouldn't have to have these bindings that it went and grabbed it. Just that sounds like a, a really good module. PR. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, that sounds like a really good PR is yeah. to introduce Wasm to Node SAS because, barring needing to access the physical system beneath, you yeah. can use Wasm to make a lot of things a lot faster. Yeah. So I mean, Node SAS, if you're listening, <laughs> this this is. If you're listening, expect a pull request from him. <laughs> or our listeners, do it do it for me. I I will send you cookies. So, <laughs> Home uh, baked or like? Of, of course. Okay. Yeah. I think you're right mm -hmm. that Wasm changes the game. Yes. And I, and I agree with you. In your talk, mm -hmm. you said JavaScript's not going away. No. I agree. I agree with you on that as well. It, people um, will not let it die. Well, you keep joking about WordPress and how WordPress still I lives. Know, it's going to be like that. Like we're not. It's never going to die. Right. It's, but I mean, I think they pair. I think they pair well together. They do. They, that's the so. whole point. That was why Wasm was designed. Was they thought, okay, we need a way to let other languages in that can do things yeah. that JavaScript isn't as good at. That's the whole reason yes. that we have it. Yeah. No. Exactly. It augments JS and makes the web stronger. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. So, well, thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you.
This is Neil Roberts, back with the TalkScript podcast. I'm joined by Eric Osmondson. Hello. Another engineer from SitePen. And I'm Luke Bonacorsi. I'm a software engineer at Skybank and Gaming in England. I build curtain automation with JavaScript. <laughs> yeah, you kind of, you know, a lot of the, a lot of your talk focused around not just automating things and, you know, you built your own chatbot and your own kind of voice assistant. Not just automating things, but kind of retrofitting different devices around your home with, like, custom-printed 3D bits and pulleys from the hardware store. <laughs> yeah, so because I live in a rented house, I don't want to destroy the house. So I like to try and find ways around things. That's sort of always been my mentality. Let's hack things a bit and see what the shortest route to getting stuff done is. Even when I write production-ready code, I will write the shortest version of it first and then make it better. And it's the same in hardware. You make something that works and then you make something that works better. It's part of the learning experience for me, really. Like you said, the physical objects make developers feel like gods. Yeah. Because that was a good way to look at it. Yeah, like we, we don't get those physical interactions as, as web developers. We're getting a bit more with sort of web VR and stuff where people can feel like they're there. Yeah. But making a light turn on and off by writing code and making it work is just, to me, mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah, and to me, you know, it was kind of interesting was just the kind of software hacker, hardware hacker approach to it. You know, a lot of the things that you have played with are things that somebody can go and buy off the shelf at this point. I know that when you first started, it wasn't, you know, as readily available, but it was interesting to see your approach, you know, taking these disparate services and hardware and try to create some glue to, to tie those together and I know that you have an open source project that you have been working on a virtual assistant bot of some sort yeah so Woodhouse is my home automation project it runs in my house I, I use it all the time and it's it's not necessarily ready for everyone else to use but it's there as a, a thing for people to get ideas from and, and use as sort of a basis for stuff it's very opinionated because I've written it for me we like opinionated. But, yeah, it, it's great for just me getting stuck in and doing stuff because I've used this whole thing as a learning experience. I have no real hardware experience outside of doing this, so being able to pick up hardware that's sort of pretty well documented and get on with it. And the other side is I don't know, like the only languages I know are web ones, namely JavaScript, PHP, HTML and CSS and if you look at traditional microcontrollers and stuff they're not focused around those things it's like write some C code or they've got like Python ones now but mm -hmm. the projects that I mentioned in my talk being Esperino, Tessel, Modable and a few others they're really great because you can write JavaScript on the hardware it means that you can take your web technology experience using a language that you know. And they provide APIs, they're all well documented, and you just use the APIs the same as you use any other library. Yeah, and your system's all pretty much IP-based, so you're not dealing with ZigBee or Z-Wave or any of the other protocols and having to add additional hardware for that? Or At the minute, are you? Okay. I'm interested in looking into like ZigBee and stuff so that Part of the problem with mine at the minute is that they have to broadcast every couple of minutes to say this is who I am, this is where I am, just in case like the central instance drops off or whatever, or the IP of the device changes. But with Zigbee and stuff like that, because you don't have the, the IP changing, 
it sort of makes it a bit more straightforward and you can make that device more low powered. But unfortunately the hardware to make your own Zigbee units and stuff or Z-Wave is really expensive mm. and I'm not kind of prepared to make that commitment yet. It's like 20 bucks just for the bit that sends the Zigbee commands whereas the board that I'm using to do all the brains is like two dollars. It doesn't make sense to me. I thought that was cool about your approach is, you know, like you automated your curtains, right? But I think a lot of us, when we think automating our curtains, we think like, oh, well, this one curtain company makes custom curtains that have this thing in it and they're 100, 200 dollars per curtain. Yeah, that sort of stuff's not really accessible, I don't feel, because it's so expensive. Mm -hmm. Being able to just like, with a few pieces, pull something together and, and make something that that works. It might not be the greatest solution, but it's the basis to get going. And then other people can take that basis and improve and fit it to their needs. Whereas the let's buy a whole curtain rail that has this stuff built in is right. Well, you need to replace everything. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then you need to do it for every room, which ends up costing like thousands of dollars. Yeah. And if you ever replace your windows, then that's another, yeah. you have to redo that again. So yeah, I really like that approach. And then one of the things that we were talking about is that I think we can feel that we've kind of gotten burned out on like reinventing an RSS reader again and again and again in JavaScript. Like it feels sometimes like there aren't super interesting front-end projects. So being able to do that with hardware. Yeah, because, well, one of the big things to me is that every instance of me putting this in, and I've done this in three houses, mm -hmm. I've had different needs in every house because the house is different. So being able to transfer it between what I do has made it more interesting whereas the web is the web the only real challenge is browsers but most stuff is sort of paved over that now with you make responsive websites everything generally runs the same sort of JavaScript stuff mm -hmm. it's not a huge challenge to make things work or to make things different anymore but yeah you call it weird and interesting <laughs> I think weird and interesting is like a good I think that's what, what, what a lot of tinkering developers yeah. are looking for is not just doing something slightly different. It's being weird, being interesting, and like hardware is such a good example of that because everything's different. <laughs> like the point of saying do something weird and interesting is that it's interesting to you so that you're involved in it and mm -hmm. you keep going because I'm sure we've all worked on projects where you just sat there, it's like why am I even writing this? I don't care about this, I just want it finished and out of the way. If you're doing that as a personal thing to learn, that's even worse because yeah. you're more likely to give up. If it's for work, you kind of have to do it because you're being paid to do it. But yeah, for your own projects, if you've got something that will drag you in and keep you going, you're going to keep building, you're going to keep working on it, you're going to, you're going to keep making it better and, and learning. Yeah, I think you said you learned ES6, new ES6 functionality through kind of your tinkering? Yeah, so I, I'd had no, like the company I worked for at the time, we exclusively used ES5. We had no like transpiling or anything. Mm -hmm. So when Node adopted ES6 through the IOJS merge and, or demerge and then merge and all that stuff, <laughs> it meant, yeah, I got to use a load of the features that I'd been reading about and saw that were really nice. So I got to dive in and use them as I was rewriting the whole project. And yeah, imagine it would even give you exposure to new frameworks. Like you're gonna have a different set of libraries, right? Even your, you know, your experience with text-to-speech, right? Like no one's, we're not really probably ever gonna encounter that in the web. Like it's something you'd only really encounter through a completely different output. Yeah, it's, it's a load of different areas to, 
to learn about really mm. it's finding these new things that you want to do and then it's a whole world that you've not explored before so you dive in and, and you figure it out whereas with web frameworks it's like well I've done web stuff before here is another different way yeah. of doing that <laughs> same web stuff so you just you end up with your own opinions that you try and fit into those frameworks yeah you having a different like way that you do something is different than having a new something to do yeah which is yeah, really, very different yeah. that's cool Definitely. And so you gave some examples of some of the projects that you've done with, you know, modifying a thermostat and, you know, smart electrical outlet plug. You know, we talked about automating your curtains and creating a bespoke system to latch on to your existing curtain. I know that you have plans in the future. Are you excited for any projects looking forward? So finishing off my blinds is one that I'm really invested in at the minute. It's been challenging because mechanics and I'm not great at mechanics and some of the variations of my case have been like one millimeter off and it's meant that like the gears were touching too much and like bending or they just weren't touching at all so that's that's a big one for me to finish off and beyond that I haven't really thought about what I want to do as the next big step I need to connect my thermostat up to the thermostat in my current house which means that I've got to do some radio frequency stuff but I was chatting to Sebastian, who's one of the other speakers, and he might have already done some background <laughs> stuff on that. So I'm going to send him over the specification of my thermostat, oh, the thermostat that's currently in the house, and he might be able to, to help me a bit. But yeah, I need to think of the next like, massive project before I start rewriting everything again, because I'm sure I will. Yeah, one of the things that I've kind of wanted to do for a while, and I'm a little bit more inspired to do it, I have a baby on the way, so... That's probably not going to happen <laughs> in the near future. But the idea of having like a record player, people really like. And there's someone that put a project together where instead of a record, you put like a slide with an RFID on it, and then it, it plays. Like that's it's really made me be like, I I really want to do that. I remember seeing that, and that was yeah really cool because they, if I remember, they hooked it into the Spotify API. Mm -hmm. and yeah. Like we're playing and it's like cards, a, it's, playing the songs that were on the cards and stuff. Yeah, and, so, and like they used a framework that actually lets you like basically use any of the streaming services, which is awesome. I think, yeah, I think I read into that project and I actually found out, I think it was called Mopedy or something, the, the framework that they use. And I'm going to be looking at making my voice units be able to play music. Mm -hmm. I love the idea of having like that physical component that you put in a location. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like that hardware is just, I don't think any of us can articulate why it's so much fun to like have it's, these physical objects that run software. <laughs> so it was the weekend that's just passed that I finished off doing the hardware voice unit. Mm -hmm. And getting that set up at the top of my stairs was a massive thing. It's like every time I've used it since, it's just been like a grin on my face that it's actually worked and responded to me because I can just walk around and just shout at my house now, <laughs> which <laughs> is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's super fun. For anyone that's listening that's you know interested in maybe leveraging their web software development skills in a more physical space, and you know, if there are any good resources that you could point them to or toolkits that you've leveraged that you think would be of value? So the frameworks that I've been using most recently has been Esperino, which I'm really happy with, and it's a really well-documented system. And the first step, I guess, would be making just like a light flash or following one of their tutorials to get things going because, yeah, once you see that you can do these things, you start getting sort of, well, I could do this thing and make this project. So, yeah, Esperino, I've got a load of 
great ones and you can flash that onto the ESP8266 boards or the ESP32 boards or they sell their own which I think are like 20 bucks and then for the Raspberry Pi there's Johnny 5 which is great because you can just run nodes you don't have to do anything special it's just nodes Johnny 5 and plug the stuff onto the, the headers I am a massive fan of the Raspberry Pis like I've used them in all sorts of things you can do Bluetooth with them as well. Did, did you know that? <laughs> um, for another talk, I made a web Bluetooth LED display that you can draw on oh, nice. through a canvas in the browser and stuff. And it's like the fact that a board that cost me 30 bucks is doing this is yeah. just mind-blowing. That's great. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of low-cost options that are yeah. available to dip your toes in. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, for, thanks for your thanks for your talk as well. Cheers. We're back on the TalkScript podcast. I'm your host Neil Roberts. I'm joined by Hi, I'm Sebastian from Germany talking about that video stuff. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. You started out your talk by giving kind of a trip down memory lane for all the old video stuff that had happened. Yeah. You said you saw your first rock concert in a tiny little thumbnail. Yes, because that was like, I'm, I'm from a very rural area originally, so mm-hmm. we only got, like, originally from, a, we only got broadband internet access two years ago. So when I was younger, I only had dial-up connection, mm-hmm. and in the beginning, only 9,600 bout, and that mm-hmm. was, like, my first live, sp- <laughs> live stream experience, which was, I mean, for a concert, there wasn't really, like, good audio and even, even worse video. Yeah. That was mid-90s, and still cool back in the day. Yeah, I feel like... We didn't. If we didn't know how good we had it, that we had enough to get us by. <laughs> yeah, you know. I mean, I, I you know, I never imagined that it would streaming video would be this good by the time I was an adult. Not for sure. No, I mean, back in the day, we also had like always install new software. Like, oh, that page requires the real time player, whatever yeah. that is. Yeah. I'm just gonna wait on my connection for 30 minutes before I'm able to start streaming <laughs> something because I need to download this 10 megabyte piece of software. So you were talking about how that era of early video was very much like a black box, right? We had software that we didn't really know what it was doing. It was coming from a source that we didn't really know about. And like even a lot of the codecs were proprietary, right? Yeah. I mean, later with the Flash Player, they introduced a codec that was at least based on an open specification, like the predecessor of the codecs that we use today. So back in the day, like first version of Macromedia Shockwave Player which later became the Flash Player, was based on the H.263 spec. Mm-hmm. So that was basically the grandfather of the video codecs we we use today on the web and well, basically everywhere. Yeah. So that was a really cool thing. But in general, yes. So the problem back in the day was it was all third-party software. It was all closed source. And yeah, you basically had to like cross fingers that it wasn't something malicious that you yeah. just enabled access to your browser. Yeah, especially, yeah, stuff, like, related to video. You really don't want <laughs> something to go wrong there. Yeah, and so, like, then we kind of, with standards, right, moved to more of a very, in a spirit of openness. Yeah, I mean, after, like, the, the time of the browser wars, and didn't Good really... Old days. Yeah, when I didn't really think about audio and video on the web, because, I mean, back in the day, it was just an edge case, mm-hmm. because many people didn't have, like, the bandwidth to... Yeah. actually watched proper video on the web so it was an edge case and well only in the like mid 2000 years it became like 
a topic that browser vendors turn to. And with HTML5, the upcoming standard or upcoming update on HTML, and a lot of work by the folks of the Opera browser when they were still doing their own rendering and layout engine and stuff like that, they contributed a lot to the HTML5 spec. And one of those things was the video element. So that was in 2007. So not that, not that long ago. But then the big video streaming companies hated that, right? Well, I mean, the problem with the video element itself is it actually works like the audio or the image element. So you put in a source that points to a file and that file you could just download mm-hmm. because that is just the thing. It's as open as it, as it can be, like anything on the web. And yeah, I mean, if your company is based on having video behind a paywall, then of course that's a bad thing because it's super easy to download that stuff and redistribute it. Mm-hmm. And I can understand that companies needed something to secure their content, to, to secure their licenses and rights and their content. Yeah. Well, to, to make it harder. <laughs> Not to make it harder, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, that's something that I kind of want to chat with you about too, but so, you know, in terms of the story that you're telling, right, we didn't know how any of this stuff worked, then it became very open, and then now we're back to much more of that, that black box you're talking about again. Yeah, and the problem is it's it's even worse because it's not as transparent as before. Mm. Before, when you wanted to play a video, you had to manually download the software, install that, and then mm. it worked. Mm. Nowadays, it's just like either baked into the operating system itself, like in iOS or Android or Windows, mm. or you're using something like the Firefox browser or Chrome, which transparently, you didn't get asked if you really want to have that, mm. which transparently downloads something in the background to enable you to play back videos who are like, secured by DRM. And this is more intransparent and even more black boxy mm. than before. Yeah, one of the things that you made me think of during the talk is that one of the things we think about is that even though we can watch it on our devices, right, quote-unquote devices, if we wanted to run it on like a Raspberry Pi, if we wanted to run it on some sort of lesser computer, right? Yeah. That they make it really difficult for you to be able to do that, even though like the library that you have, you know, open sourced yeah. shows that it can be done. It's completely possible. Yeah, I mean the library I it wasn't me alone, so I was working with two other people mm-hmm. on that well open source Netflix client. Mm-hmm. And I mean we do not bypass DRM with that because it would be illegal. Yep. We, we set out to just build something that is legal and that people can run on their own terms. Mm-hmm. And also that works on a Raspberry Pi because that was the thing that got me interested yeah. in it initially. And the thing, it, it, it uses the Vitevine DRM library in the background. Mm-hmm. And Vitevine is a company that is owned by Google. And if you use an Android device, if you use Google Chrome, if you use Firefox, Every video gets like streamed or decrypted or decoded, depends, using that library, which is probably the most used DRM system out there. And I don't know, I mean, I can't say for sure, but if a company has that much power and even like reaches out into third party or even like competitor products like yeah. Firefox, mm-hmm. well, theoretically, they just could, well, do some data analysis and like without you knowing 
they would know what you watch when and oh, yeah. where. <laughs> so that is theoretically possible. I mean, I talked to some people, some Firefox engineers, and they said, yeah, we built a very proper sandbox system around mm. that, that library. But, well, yeah, I mean, it is technically possible. I'm not saying they do, but it is technically possible. Well, yes, it's hard to say that something sandboxed if it downloads something to run inside of it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's signed or they do that, that extra legwork, I mean, it's very difficult. That is the thing. If you, I mean, Firefox is not the only third-party software that uses the Vibe library. For example, if you use the Spotify player on your computer, that uses that too for audio. And other third parties that are licensed by ByteVine, e.g. Google, to do that. But none of them is allowed to ship that library with their software directly. They all need to download it from Google's Edge service. So at least Google can keep track which software is requesting their, mm. their libraries. And that is just like, I feel it's very not the open web, not mm. the thing that I fell in love with. Yeah. It's, it's a very close thing. And that, on one hand, it makes me sad to see people like Sir Tim Berners-Lee, which, I mean, Everyone on the web probably adores for what he's done because he invented the thing. Mm -hmm. He was basically saying, yeah, maybe it's not the best thing to standardize this in browsers, to the interface to access this content decryption modules, this DRM systems. But, well, we need to have it because otherwise we wouldn't have video behind a paywall in the browser and everyone would, well, build their own third-party software and not use the browser, not use the internet. I mean, it's like... I can understand why he was rooting for let's standardize this. Mm. But on the other hand, it, I don't know, it makes me a bit sad because, well, this is not the open web. Yeah, this, is, gonna, this is a black box. It's kind of chuckling when you read it because it sounded very much like a non-answer. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of like, we have to. <laughs> uh, I mean, and it's true because if you want to have that video in a browser, you have to. You have to do some kind of thing. And also, I'm not a, like really specialist in US laws Mm -hmm. but as far as I figured out as far as I read I mean US laws require those contents to have some kind of DRM security on them which is also one thing that probably led Tim Berners-Lee to say well there are laws and we have to adhere to those laws so if we want to have it that's the only way well that's what's funny we were saying that Netflix even like went above and beyond the DRM to go even take a step further, right? Like that. Yeah, there, there was like there. There is some like the Netflix technical block is a very interesting resource for many of those things. I mean, many other things as well. Mm-hmm. But I mean, back in 2013, 2014, when they first started dabbling with using like the video element and using native DRM in the browser to have HTML5 based playback mm-hmm. of their contents. They put out like really interesting resources about why HTTPS isn't secure enough for them and why they rolled out, rolled out their own encryption mechanism, the message security layer system, which is like this thing that uses public and private keys that gets generated in with a bunch of JavaScript in the browser application. And so they, they kind of like secure the license and the manif- manifest, the things you need to play back a video in a browser with that extra encryption layer. They don't serve it by HTTPS then, they just use plain HTTP because they're so confident that their system is like good. And well, it is. Well, the thing is, it's open source, so they have a Java server implementation mm. on their GitHub and also JavaScript-based client-side tests for that. So that it wasn't really reverse engineering, it was more like just reading the open source code yeah. and implementing that while well, we implemented it in Python then finally. but. It's not like they were like, 
this is top secret. Yeah. It is open source and it's a really interesting system that can also be used for encryption of other API resources. And as it's open source, you can use it too. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that they're, you know, like with the tool that you're doing, you can argue that DRM is bad or good in and of itself, right? But the fact that they're also dictating like where you're allowed to play back the content that you're paying for, that's where I find your your library like a clear, mm. you can clearly show like they're not just limiting, they're not just locking down content that you yep. that, that you have, they're locking down how you even get to experience it. The thing is, I mean, I initially built it just because I wanted to learn about that video and wanted to learn how all of this works because I had no idea. And yeah, I the best, no idea. <laughs> the best thing to, to learn about something, at least for me, is just like to build it. Yeah. So that's why I did it. And also I just wanted to, I had some spare Raspberry Pis laying around and I <laughs> definitely wanted to have video playback. Yeah. And Netflix enabled. And I, I mean, I never wanted to do something illegally, which I don't think it is. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, doesn't really adhere to Netflix terms and conditions. So they theoretically could restrict access to your account, at least mm -hmm. temporarily. But that never happened to me. That never happened to anyone I, yeah. I know using that thing. But so I have a company who I pay for. I mm -hmm. mean, I'm a happy customer. I, I like that there's a way to get the video streaming service like this without like needing to pirate things mm -hmm. like it was before we had yeah. those, the services. But on the other hand, a couple of months ago, I was uh, contacted by... A company from Africa who built like the hardware, the second most popular video streaming hardware in Africa, and they were approved by Amazon to have playback for Prime, but Netflix had no intention to approve them that to get the Netflix application mm -hmm. okay. on their system. Mm -hmm. So the only way for people was to like sideload the thing, and they approached me and asked me if I could like build them a software like a Netflix player mm -hmm. that they can ship with their with their hardware and I was then telling them <laughs> that you know I mean I have this open source thing but that's a whole different story because if you want to do it commercially then I would say to be honest it's illegal and the thing is Netflix could change their API and everything like anytime yeah and I've experienced that with the open source project so API change means okay someone has to analyze it, fix it, and the the open source player wasn't working for a couple of days. I was telling them that really I don't think it's a good idea to build something on your own, and I certainly won't help you with that because I personally think that's illegal. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think it's it's a shame. Like it's the second most popular thing in Africa, and it doesn't seem like Netflix cares about that, and that makes me a bit sad because. People over there want to pay for that, and they're not able to do it because they can watch it. Yeah, that like that desire to control every part of your entire experience is confusing to me. I, under, I understand what they're trying to do, but I don't. Yeah, I don't I mean, think it needs to be that <laughs> that I, much. I mean, I'm I'm not in contact with Netflix. Mm -hmm. I, I can say anything about what they do internally, but from the outside, it looks like. They want to control the experience mm -hmm. because if you open the developer tools in your browser on an FX page, you see a lot of requests in terms of analytics and mm -hmm. user behavior, etc. Yeah. And I think, I mean, they probably want to control the experience because they want to get that data and yeah. that is important. I mean, that is also important to improve the product, to mm -hmm. improve the Netflix experience. I can't deny, but yeah, I'm not really like a big fan of analytics. It would be great if you had like switches to say, yeah, I don't want to be yeah analyze like that i don't want to send that data that i would love to see that but or at least just say like you're comfortable with it like it's a lot weirder 
it's a lot creepier, I guess, to be watching everything that I do without my permission. I would give them my permission because I understand what they do with it. But I just, I'd like to be asked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same here. I mean, I would even like, if they don't ask, if there was like this hidden thing somewhere mm-hmm. in the settings, yeah. I would be okay with it. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't, wouldn't be the best thing, but I would be okay with it. But yeah, so from all the reverse engineering we did, we saw a lot of requests dedicated to analyzing user behavior, at least from what we like deducted yeah. from the data that was sent. So yeah, that is also something that the open source version doesn't do. Yeah. So <laughs> probably, well, I don't know, maybe maybe Netflix one day will come around and well shut it down. It hasn't happened yet. I'm basically living with the fear of receiving a letter from a lawyer for two and a half years now. Yeah. I'm not even actively maintaining this project yeah. anymore because I gave it away to other people mm. because it was really time consuming. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. So far it worked and it worked for the people who well, wanted yeah. to use it. So. It's all—it's pretty much using all W3C standards, right? Like yeah, for, I mean, for a major part, it's going to be there's hard the, to get around that. <laughs> there is no way to get around like using the DRM. I mean, there are ways because software Vibevine decryption has been hacked like a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. But I never really wanted to do something legally. I wanted yeah. to understand how it is done, like per standard and that's how we build it like around standards around how things really are on the web yeah using the technologies that are used on the web that's an implementation of standard drm in the end you you could argue at least i would argue that it's just like a web browser that's very specifically tailored to netflix (laughs) but i mean personally if netflix would say we're not fine with it we're not cool with it and i would say okay I have no problem shutting it down. If they reach out, I never want to do something that's illegal. I yeah. just wanted to offer an open source alternative. Yeah, but even then, like all your, you, you know, you split it up into a DRM, or you split it up into a decoder library, and you split it up into a yeah. DRM playback library, and I feel like that's all the same difference. It's hard to say that using standards that are all available and open is a problem at all. It's cool understanding that a lot of the systems in place now for decoding are pretty much standard ways of doing things like i had no idea i thought we we're still dealing with a lot of of plugins and stuff like that so it's interesting to see that there's a system for it yeah i mean also the problem with it is it is not a monopoly but like the big players are google apple and microsoft yeah so they with the sheer range of operating systems and browsers and devices they put out they just control, I would say, over 90% of the market. There are other DRM vendors who put out their own solutions, but they're just like niche things because why would you use something different than what is given to you by an operating system that you already have? Yeah. And yeah, that that is another thing that worries me because it's like, again, those big players, they are in control of the whole ecosystem. And basically, because it's a bike box, they can do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So things get better, mm-hmm. things get worse. We'll see how we'll see what happens next. <laughs> Probably Amazon putting out their own system. I don't know. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> you called it. <laughs> well, it was good chatting with you. I enjoyed your talk. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Of course. Got a good thing going on. Ba, 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 ba.